TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. If we know those things, if we know those places in our chart, and if we can fully live into them, I guarantee we'll find a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and feel much more aligned with our life's purpose. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with Chani Nicholas about her life in astrology. Most ancient cultures believed that nature was having a conversation with us. Here's Debbie. What's your sign? Depending on the type of person you are, that can be a conversation opener or a conversation stopper. For me, it's an opener, and I happily jump into a rabbit hole of astrological lore, intuition, and speculation. I absolutely want to know what the universe can tell me about myself. In her new book, You Were Born for This, The Astrology for Radical Self-Acceptance, Chani Nicholas writes, Astrology is a relentless reminder that we are the way we are on purpose. This book, from an astrologer who never ignores the social forces bearing down on us, is a serious invitation for each of us to explore what our purpose and place in this universe is. Chani Nicholas joins me from a studio in Los Angeles. Chani, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Chani, in my research, I stumbled upon the fact that there's an actress from Canada named Chani Nicholas who had parts in the <laughs> slasher flick The Long Weekend, the action movie Cruise, and the horror film Slices. Were these your early acting cuts? I don't know her. <laughs> I should have known. I was like, what is Debbie going to dig up? I didn't even think of that. Yes, that was an earlier incarnation. <laughs> oh, it is. I was yeah. like, it can't possibly be. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so what persuaded you to move away from acting? 
Well, the industry wouldn't have me. So it was my, uh, it's the reason why I moved to LA is because my mom is a landed immigrant in Canada. So she never gave up her American citizenship. And I was acting at the time. So I went in and out of acting and social work and community work in my 20s in Toronto. And I really wanted to give it a try in L.A., and I had citizenship. So unlike every other struggling actor in Toronto, it was actually really easy for me to move here. And so I moved here and gave it my all for three to four years, and I made a commitment to myself that if I ever started to become bitter about the industry, that I would get out. And I did. I started to become bitter, and I really just kind of sat down and prayed one uh, for probably a series of days about what to do next. And I really did feel released from the industry and from the desire to be an actor. I feel like I really gave it what I wanted to, and I got so much out of it. And I feel like I utilize all aspects of everything that I learned in it. And it's still a great, great love of mine. But the industry and me are not, we're not very compatible, especially at that point. And then I started to more seriously go back into things that had to do with healing and kind of awakening, I guess. Well, I guess the universe had other plans for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're from a tiny town called Nelson in British Columbia in the far west of Canada, population 10,600. Your father was from there. Your mom was from the Bronx. That's quite yeah. a range of influences. Yeah. You've described your upbringing as a cross between a Neil Simon play and the Trailer Park Boys. Can you elaborate on what that means a bit? Yeah. <laughs> um, I grew up in that very rural town, and I grew up before the internet. So when you're in a town that's isolated geographically and also by climate, so in the winter, it's a very isolating experience to be in the base of the Rocky Mountains. And pre-internet and and pre-phones, you know, phones, you couldn't talk on, you know, it was like a big deal to make a long-distance call. And so when we were in Nelson, we were very much just in Nelson. And because it was such a small town, it was a very specific experience. I grew up in large part in a trailer park, um, at least when I was with my dad. And my father, you know, was one of the poorest families in the very small town. And so... He grew up with, like, 13 brothers and sisters, and they were just known as, like, the roughest kids in their school days and then really kind of rough around the edges. My dad was a logger. And, you know, the trailer park that we grew up in tried to kick us out. <laughs> because, wow. Because they were a little too wild and crazy. They partied a little too hard and— there was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of upheaval in our trailer. And the other trailers in the in the park didn't really appreciate it. So I had that. And then we would go to New York every year. And my mom's family was all born and raised and very prideful New York Jews. And it was such an incredible opposite experience to most of my life in Nelson. Chani, you write this in the introduction to your new book, You Were Born for This, and it stopped me in my tracks. You write this. While the adults in my life partied and self-destructed with wanton abandon, 
I watched The Cosby Show and dreamed of a life with parents, siblings, grandparents, and a lineage to claim me. When the party came home, I felt a different kind of loneliness. An overdose, a fatal accident, a shotgun fired, a conviction. I knew what cocaine tasted like by the time I was five. Channy. <laughs> Channy, how is this possible? How did you survive this? Well, I think a lot of us are miracles. I've, I've sat with thousands of people, and I've looked at their chart, and I've looked into their past, and I've seen so many of us and sat in circles and social justice spaces. And to bear witness to the miracle of what we survive as humans is one of the greatest gifts of my work. For those of us that grew up in environments like that, it's that experience. And it's really normal to me, and it was normal to a lot of, of the kids I grew up with, so that when we get together, I was just in my hometown over the holidays, and I was sitting around the table of the kids of all the people that used to party together, and you know we grew up and out of all of that. But it was so comforting to be sitting around a table of people where I could say something about my life set up and everybody just understood. And it really was this collective experience that we had because we were living in a town, again, so isolated in the 70s and 80s when when culture was kind of like, you know, getting ripped open. I mean, it was after the 60s, but there was this upheaval in like and an experimentation and just a free-for-all and the amount of bad behavior that people can get away with in a space where everyone else is doing it is can be quite extraordinary. And I think folks just weren't really into being parents. They just were really into doing what they wanted to do. And it was a childhood that was terrifying. I mean, I really was quite terrified my whole childhood. And I also grew up in this incredible beauty and the abundance of beauty and the nature that I grew up in was a lifesaver for sure. And also the the people I grew up with, my friends and the groups of us that kind of helped each other through all of that. If you were exposed to cocaine by the time you were five, how did you not become addicted and why weren't you taken away by child services? Well, I... Definitely struggled with addiction, and I have in a lot of my life. I don't drink or do drugs at this point, and I haven't in about 10 years, so I am sober. And it was a really important thing for me because while I made a very conscious decision probably by the time I was six or seven or eight that I would never become a drug addict because I grew up around so many, I never had a normal or normal. I never had a good relationship with substances. They were always used in a harmful way or my engagement with them was always around self-hate or some kind of harm or I would it's too easy for me to go there when I use substances. So I just don't. But it took me a long time and many many atrocious mistakes mm. and a lot of wrong turns and a lot of living out the stuff that I grew up in. I write in the book like I'm a really really late bloomer. I messed up a lot and I struggled a lot. And then, 
you know, I fell in love and everything came together. <laughs> at, at that point in your life, were you pondering your future or were you just really solely in survival mode? Uh, when I met my wife? No, no, no. no. Back, oh, back when back you were a child. Oh, yeah. I was desperate for any kind of adult. I was I was desperate for anybody with any any sense of maturity and any sense of like authority. And so when I met the woman who became my step-grandmother, my dad's third wife's mom, who I write about in the book, I met her when I was 11 and it was a spiritual experience. I met her and I felt like a voice like rose up in me and said, "Follow this woman. She knows how to make it out." So I was always just trying to make it out. Something in me told me there was more to life than what was happening around me. And if I could just get out, I would be okay. And so then it was just this desire and this hunting, really, for some adult or something to help me find my way out and to find my way towards, really towards healing. I mean, like I was asking, I was begging her, she is a Reiki master, she, I was begging her at the age of 12 to let me come to Reiki workshops with her because I just knew I needed a space where I could start to sort things out. I know that when you were eight years old, you had the first experience of feeling seen. Can can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's a hazy memory, but I do remember I was taken on a lot of adventures by adults that were not necessarily up to any good. So it felt like one of those things where it was a drug run. So there was a drug deal happening and I was along for the ride. It was one of those things where I spent a lot of my childhood either in a car or in a back room of a bar or in some back room of a party or kind of like shut away a lot of times so that adults could do whatever they wanted. So when an adult would actually see me or see, you know, the kids that were around, it was always a little startling. And this time I was sitting there, you know, minding my own business um, while some transaction was happening. And I just remember this woman that the person I was with was talking to. And she was like, what's her birthday? And she was told my birthday. And she opened up what I can only assume is an ephemeris and looked down and calculated, you know, my planets and looked up at me and said, you're very judgmental. And I, I thought, yes, yes, I am. And I didn't really even... <laughs> I didn't even really know what it meant, but I felt like it had power, and I felt like I it inferred to me that she was saying I had discernment. And I don't know if that's what she meant, but that's what I took from it. And I just always – I yearned for someone in my life to say, this is wrong. This should not be happening. This child should not be witness to this. Like, somebody stop and do something to protect this child or these children. And because no one ever did, I became somebody who was quite protective and protected and a little harsh sometimes in my judgment. So when that astrologer or when that person said that about what I'm assuming is my astrology, I felt really seen. I was like, cool, I'm judgmental. And I really hung on to it. <laughs> you had some pride about it. <laughs> um, tell us about your second interaction, the second major interaction you had with astrology. You were about 12, I believe. Yeah, I was 12, which is a really beautiful moment astrologically and also psychologically, which a lot of astrological cycles, of course, 
come together with psychological cycles. But it's like that pre little prepubescent or kind of right right on the edge of it, and we're all seeking like more self knowledge. And it's a Jupiter return, and Jupiter is about knowledge and wisdom and expansion and growth. And my dad had left that small town with his third wife. They flew the coop, so to speak, because she was in a very abusive relationship and everyone was kind of in a very abusive relationship, but she was in a severe one. And they left and uh, my dad left, my sister and I, we both have different moms, but we were we were left behind in Nelson. And they would start to fly me out to Toronto where they moved to. And I knew the woman who became my stepmom, and I knew her children really well. I had actually grown up with them. I was their babysitter, and we were all together all the time. And so when they left, it was really an incredible break for me psychologically because it was an escape route all of a sudden had been built for me. They were out of Nelson. They were in a big city. And her parents were, like, well-educated, and also her mom was really into the healing arts, And so when we won, I think the first summer I was out there, her mom, again, a Reiki master, had friends that were psychics and tarot card readers and astrologers. And she was like, hey, you should all go out to this woman and get an astrology reading. And so we did. And I just remember sitting down in this woman's house and we were all sitting around and everyone was kind of paying attention and in and out. And my stepbrother and sister were like there and also playing outside and I remember myself being riveted by everything this woman was saying because not only was I, did I feel seen by her, but I also felt like I could understand why my stepsister acted that way and my stepbrother that way and my stepmom that way and my dad that way. And it was this sense of like, oh, we're all actually made really differently and we all need very different things and we have very different temperaments. And it was just really clarifying for me. And it gave me, I think, a sense of agency. And I felt an instant connection, like I, like she was speaking a language that I knew, but no one had spoken to me in before. And she wrote a book, and my dad bought it for me. And I've been reading about astrology ever since. How did your relationship with astrology progress after that first session? You've said that it made you less lonely and less afraid of life, but Mm. did it also at that point give you a sense of purpose? Maybe. I think because I lived in such severe isolation and honestly, you know, especially in the first part of my life with such severe neglect, that it was to build a relationship with something that felt like it was speaking to me was a lifeline, like a pipeline of energy. I think that was always what captivated me, that something wanted to be in conversation with me. I, you know, read that book, and I think I just was then having conversations with that step-grandmother and her husband read tarot cards, and there was astrological symbols in the tarot cards that he read. And I was just like soaking up all the stories of their kind of spiritual awakenings and quests and all the wild, they had wild stories of stuff that had happened to them and psychic experiences and all of, she was a very, she is a very powerful healer and she has her own um, epic kind of story and she had her own teachers and I met all of them. And so I was like inundated with this world of 
healing and really, really powerful women who were being of service in a way that was thrilling to me, I think. It must have um, felt like a doorway to a magical universe. Totally, totally. Here was people that were just so consumed with consciousness and healing and getting to know themselves and what does it take to actually change and move from sorrow and despair and self-destruction into life and living and thriving. And so I was like just all in. So astrology was always a part of that, but there was all of these different conversations that were being weaved together. And then it wasn't until I think my like 20 where I started taking formal astrology classes. So I understand when you were 20, you attended what you've dubbed as a lesbian finishing school to study, Mm -hmm. quote, feminist counseling. (laughs) So tell us more about that. (laughs) Yeah, I had gone. So I wanted to be an actress when I was a child. That was like always my thing. And then I went traveling for a year after high school. And I, you know, lived a little and saw some things in the world. And I came back and I turned on the TV and I thought, what? That doesn't seem to be very meaningful. And so I was just like flipping through college books and trying to find something that was calling me. And this program, which was called Assaulted Women's and Children's Counselor Advocate, seemed to be this really fascinating collection of teachers. And it was really like Feminism 101. And they put it in the framework of how to be a counselor in uh, like basically in shelters for folks that had survived domestic violence and intimate partner violence. But really it was much it was it was a gateway. It was an opening towards feminist theory and queer theory. And all of my teachers were women. A lot of them were queer. Everybody came out in the first like three weeks of school because there was a really cute butch teacher. <laughs> was like, I know what that so, feels like. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, everyone was gay and nobody had hair anymore. Like, everyone had shaved their hair off and everyone was wearing baggy clothes. Um, so it was one of those. And it was incredible. It was like it really woke me up in that queer radical place. And gave me a a ground to come from. And, like, I didn't, you know, again, this is all pre-internet. This is, well, the internet was happening, but we weren't on it all the time like we are now. So feminism was something that was really new and to me. And it wasn't new as a construct, but it was in terms of, like, getting my hands on literature and essays and being, you know, steeped in the philosophies was the fir- that was the first time I had really been inundated in it, and I was like, "This is who I am." You know, like it was a uh, it was again a real a feeling of being witnessed and finding something that was really important for me. Your first visit to Los Angeles was the day that you moved there in two thousand and five. <laughs> you had twelve hundred dollars and one route to the beach, and I know as you were attempting to work in acting, you also worked as a waitress and a bartender and a house cleaner. What role was astrology playing in your life at that point? Mm. You know, it was always just there. Like I had been giving readings at that point for like 10 years, but never for my full income. Giving readings is a specific kind of labor, and I don't think that I was kind of energetically or emotionally boundaried enough to give them consistently. And so they were always something that I did with people, and I would 
do it for a couple of years and then it would kind of fade away and then it would come back. And so at that point, I think I just was always that person who was talking to people about their astrology and the new moon. And like I would always do new moon rituals. I'd always talk about the fact that it was the new moon or it was an eclipse. And so I've always been that girl just like nattering on about what the planets were doing. It was more in the background of my being at that point. And then over the f- next couple of years after moving here, it came more into the foreground. And then I started to give people readings again. And and then slowly that turned into writing horoscopes and all the rest. You also started teaching yoga, but I know that left you unfulfilled. You stated that you didn't want to be part of the yoga industrial complex, which I loved. <laughs> didn't know that existed. <laughs> um, tell us what that experience was like for you. It was when I had realized I'd become a bitter actress in Hollywood, and I thought, I need I need something else. This isn't working in the way that I want it to. And so I sat down and prayed and prayed and prayed and asked for what I should do next. And the only thing that I heard, quote unquote, is go do a yoga teacher training. And I literally out loud was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it was not something that I wanted to do. And I really, I got kind of angry. And then I've been taught time and time again by many teachers that when you get the message, pick, like hang up the phone, like you you got the message, so now go do the thing. Well, that ultimately is what led you on a path to the introduction to your wife. So that all worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah, and I needed the yoga. Like yoga's always been a part of my life. I've done it since I was, I think I was introduced to it when I was 11 it was something that was so like it heals on so many different levels and it's where i learned of course breath work and meditation and so i just needed that healing and then it was a way for me to create money and you know support myself in a way that felt less harmful than a bartender because as a bartender i was just engaging with all of the alcoholism in a way that was very and sexual harassment in a way that just made me so angry all the time. <laughs> so I, wa- I wasn't a very good bartender. I mean, it was really good technically, but I wasn't good, you know, personally. Now, I know you had recurring dreams at that point, and I don't mean metaphorical dreams. Yeah. These were dreams that you were having while you were sleeping, sort of yeah. recurring dreams. What what were they about? Well, this would happen when I was in my early 20s as well, when I first started studying astrology. I dream, I go out to the planets, and they they show me things. So... They either show me how they work or they show me how they work in my chart or they show me something about their movement and their essence. And then later in life when I was really feeling probably quite sorry for myself and very lost and not sure what to do or how to like facilitate income that was going to support me in a more abundant way. And I was going to school and I, I would have these dreams where the planets would get really, really loud and they'd actually yell at me and tell me to look things up in my chart or in somebody else's chart. And so I would be coming to consciousness and I'd have some booming voice just like directing me to go do something. And then I would do it and it would be really this like kind of profound teaching moment. And it got to a place where it felt actually kind of scary, you know, not scary, but it's. It felt like I was not able to really rest that well. 
it was at that point that I started to actually engage with astrology consciously, and I decided to study with my teacher, Demetra George, and I started decided to start writing more seriously. And then the dreams, the dreams have quieted way down, and they only come when I really need them, like either if I'm really – like when I – the book title, I really couldn't find a book title, and finally I was just like, okay – tell me in my dream just like tell me what it is and I went to sleep and I woke up with it it was like yelling at me <laughs> but back then you didn't want to be an astrologer to you you right. you've stated that you felt that it wasn't a real job why is that I grew up in a town where no one had to have any real ambition which is fine I don't think ambition is the be-all end-all but I grew up in a town where Education was never a thing. If people went to college, it was like a really big deal. And so because I grew up with so much illegal activity and, you know, kind of jobs and half things, and I just wanted to move into a sense of professionalism. And I wanted to be taken seriously, probably. I was probably also concerned with how I appeared in the world. I wanted something serious. I wanted something that had some weight to it. And I wanted to engage with the world in a professional way. And I just didn't see how astrology could do that. I think it was too peripheral. It, like, I again, because I grew up in a town where everyone was an outcast. And so they went to this place and then they just lived however they wanted. And there was no societal rules, really, that anybody had to adhere to. I feel like I really wanted structure and I wanted rigor. I didn't f know how to do that in astrology until I went to this big, huge astrological conference called UAC in 2012. And I saw professional astrologers and I was like, oh, my God, these people are like super nerds. <laughs> they're, like, <laughs> they're like history nerds and they're like they know ancient languages and these are like serious academics. And then I thought, oh, this is a different thing. I haven't been thinking of it like this. And then that's again when I met my teacher and um, soon after that started studying with her. You've said that you regard astrology as a tool of reflection that doesn't judge the many aspects of self but only reveals them. What do you say to the people who are dismissive of astrology? I don't, like, I don't want to live in a world where we all like astrology. How I come? Would, Why not? It would it make it would such be... a nice world. <laughs> because I think it would be, I think humans are so diverse. And I think we just need really different things. And I don't think any one healing system should speak to everybody. Like, I don't think Jungian therapy is for everybody or Gestalt therapy or somatic therapy or hiking isn't for everybody. You know, like, I feel like we really do need different ways to access the same information. And so to skeptics, I think, great, I just want to know what they're into. I'm actually just really interested in people and how, how do you function and where do you find meaning and where do you, how do you heal and how do you connect to yourself? And I want to know about that. And also, I think, you know, people that are really skeptical of astrology, I doubt they know much about it in its kind of depth and also its history. How so, would you describe it? How would you describe astrology yeah. to somebody that is either a skeptic or knows absolutely nothing about it? Yeah, astrology is a snapshot of time. So it's the moment something comes into form. So the moment we start a business, the moment we start a meeting, the moment somebody takes their first breath, we take a snapshot of the sky 
And we look to see the ways in which the whole sky is shaped and how things are communicating with each other. It is a representation of you or of that moment. And so we are all walking, talking, breathing, or moving amulets of the moment, of the celestial moment that we were born. If that sounds really strange to you, I get it. But, and also, we have to remember that it's born out of a system and out of a understanding that the world, the earth, the sky, everything in nature is alive. And we're in conversation with it. And there's a way to speak to and listen to everything in the universe. And so most ancient cultures believed that nature was having a conversation with us. And so in all of our different cultural ways, we studied the way in which we felt nature was speaking to us. And so we would be able to glean information from it or at least be in that kind of call and response. And so the sky is something that we always looked to. The sky has always been a map, even if it's not been a psychological map or a predictive map. It's always been a map of where we are, like being nomadic or or traveling, you know, before we had GPS, <laughs> before we had phones, before we had actual paper maps, we had the map of the sky. And it would tell us, you know, the North Star, like our that ability to understand where we are in time and space and what season it is. We always looked to the stars. We always looked to see what was happening to understand where we were, both physically, I think, and also in terms of our life and its purpose and the meaning of it. So it's this really ancient relationship that we have. And even if you don't want anybody to ever tell you anything about being an Aquarius, that's fine. I get it. It gets weird sometimes and very stereotypical. But just to understand our ancient relationship to sun, moon, stars, sky, seasons, and the way in which we were always in this kind of like call and response with that, I think is important because it reminds us that we are actually we come out of systems and cultures that were felt like we were part of everything around us. And I think we've really lost that. I want to talk to you a little bit about the methodology and the process of astrology. You've described mm-hmm. sun signs, horoscopes as the things you read in papers or online as one crumb of astrology's cake. Why is that? Horoscopes are really, really new in terms of astrology's history. So they're only like a couple hundred years old. And astrology is a couple thousand years old. And we used it, astrologers used it as a way to start to speak to the general public because everybody knows, not everybody, but most people know the day that they were born. And therefore, you can pretty easily understand what sign the sun was in when you were born. And the sun is a big part of your astrological makeup. And so astrologers were like, hey, we can start a conversation with the general public from that one point of view. And so then there's a way in which you write a horoscope from the point of view of the sun. It's called a sun sign horoscope or sun sign astrology. And it's something that anybody can pick up and use and work with. And so it was never, ever, ever meant to replace a reading of your specific astrological chart, which was taken at the moment that you were born, at the place in which you were born. It was just a way to say, hey, here's a little gateway into astrology for the general public. And if you like it, come with us and there's more, much, much, much more over here. 
Your brand new book, You Were Born for This, The Astrology for Radical Self-Acceptance, is both a workbook and a guide, and you liken it a bit to a choose-your-own-adventure book. What Mm -hmm. made you decide to structure it in that way? In all honesty, my wife, Sonia Passi, (laughs) who, who edited this book and who helped me to structure it, I just wanted to write and talk about and teach everything I knew. And she was like, hold on, let's pull the reins back and actually try to format this in a way where people that don't know anything about their chart might feel like they have access to it. And so she really has taught me everything I know about how to structure information in a way that feels accessible to people. And so we wanted to do an intro book. Like this really is an intro to the most important parts of your chart. And it's a way of starting to like, again, open that door just a little bit so that everybody might get to understand a little bit more than just their sun sign. You have three key frameworks in your book, the sun, your life's purpose, the moon, your physical and emotional needs, and the ascendant and its ruler, your motivation for living in the direction your life is steered in. Can you talk a little bit about why you structured it that way? Yeah, those are the cornerstones of any chart. So whether we're looking at a chart for a business, for a wedding, for somebody's life. We we need to know those things. And if we get lost or too far away from those keys, we don't really have a very thorough understanding of the chart itself. We think of those places, the ascendant is the sign that's rising up over the eastern horizon the moment we take our first breath. It's a very specific point. It changes really quickly throughout the day because the sky always looks to be moving. And so that is the marker when we take our first inhale. And the whole chart is, but it starts with the rising sign or the ascendant. It's the invocation of life. It's the way in which, if you want to speak in terms of spirit, it's the moment your spirit said, yes, I will come into body. And then the sun and moon, because they're not planets, they're what we call luminaries, they're bodies of light. Light and life are always equated, like shining, shimmering, the ability for a planet or or a planetary body to produce light is very important in astrology. And so the sun being this ever-present source of light and energy and life and warmth has always been thought of as the divine mind, the divine spark, the soul, the essential self. And the moon, because it waxes and wanes and is so close to us, it's our it's our neighbor. It's the reflection of the sun's light. And so it's the reflection of that is our body. It's our physical manifestation of our soul. And so these places all speak to the quality of life and the power of the life source that we have to work with in the time frame that we're here. And then the planet that rules the ascendant is steering the life in a specific direction. And so if we know those things, if we know those places in our chart, and if we can fully live into them, I guarantee we'll find a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and feel much more aligned with our life's purpose. Long before you wrote your book, you started writing horoscopes for your friends and began to send them via email. Um, But I understand that when you first started writing, you would literally be doubled over in shame (laughs) and pain and self-doubt. But it also felt like something you had to do. Where was that pain coming from and how has it dissipated? Oh, I wish it dissipated. It felt so big with the book. I 
was just, you know, suffering from it a little bit, like last night and the night before. I think there's something, and folks that have similar issues or similar experiences as me will probably resonate with this. But I think that when you are, when there's a lot of neglect or you feel invisibilized either by family or culture, I think when you bring yourself into form by writing something or acting something or building something or making something that other people can see and that you're giving it out to them, there's a way in which all of a sudden, for me, I become more real. I'm defining myself by writing these things and putting them out. For me, being somebody that was so low on the priority list of of the adults in my life it just brings up the feeling of having been left and denied and betrayed and abandoned. And so it's this weird thing. It's like I'm actively trying to heal this and bring myself into form and bring myself into the world. And yet my experience of being forgotten and invisibilized becomes more pronounced as I do that. So it is a experience that comes in tandem. There's like this, yay, I put something out, and a feeling of releasing a creative, you know, spirit from myself or creative energy into the world. And at the same time, all of my survival mechanisms, like stay small, stay quiet, stay invisible so that you don't get harassed or something bad doesn't happen. Like there's so much chaos in the world and in my life that – I had to just keep everything as small and still as possible. So it's just that all that fear and that the trauma response, I think, of being more present in the world. But you've kept writing. You've stated that as you were writing first the horoscopes and then your blog, that you could sense that it was the start of something that you'd been searching for for your whole life. Yeah. Um, did you also see that in your chart? Were you able to self-identify some of your own possible destinies? You know, Demetra George, my teacher, did for me. When we started studying, she was like, look, I get that you're really intuitive and I get that you probably have amazing dreams that tell you things, which I did. And uh, she was like, but I want you to put that all aside and I want to teach you a system that will never fail. She didn't say it like this, but the system that she taught me never fails me. It's a it's a great structure. And, and she said, and then put on on top of it back all of your intuitive stuff. But I want you to get the structure first. And so when she taught me the structure, all of a sudden my chart made sense to me. And it was clear to me that all the things that I felt I wanted to do, but I was really unsure of, basically the writing and and teaching, that was so clearly defined in my chart, that the ruler of my ascendant is in the place of teaching and writing. Once I saw that confirmation, I gave myself a permission that I had never before, and that's when things really started to work for me. Demetra George has stated that astrology is a self-secret system, which is just gorgeous, but I don't quite understand what it means. Yeah, it's kind of secret in itself. Um, So that it's like when when the student is ready, the teacher appears. It's like you can read something a million times and think that you understand it, and then You'll do a piece of healing or learning or growth, and you read it again, and you're like, oh, now I really get it. And so astrology can be captivated by it and feel intrigued by it for a long time, as I did. And I studied it for a long time, but until her and I started to work together, 
I didn't feel like it fully revealed itself to me until I committed to it in a way. And so I feel like it remained kind of shrouded or just out of reach until she gave me these tools. Um, and then I felt much more engaged with it. From the outset, you have not shied away from blending your horoscopes with your riffs on politics and the world. <laughs> the New York Times dubbed you a kind of social justice astrologer. And um, just a sampling of topics you've tackled in your <laughs> astrology in the years since you began, the Me Too movement, net neutrality, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm-hmm. the pre- President Trump. And mm-hmm. early on, you thought that people would hate it. Um, you saw yourself in the space between spiritual people who don't want politics and people who want politics, but not any spirituality or astrology. Mm-hmm. How did you find your audience or how did they find you? You know, I hadn't been living in San Francisco at that point. And once I moved there, I really understood what I was missing. But queer culture, queer community, I think, really found me and dug in and and shared my work in a way that set me up in such a phenomenal position. I felt really, really loved and really accepted and very, very, very supported by a queer community. That's the point that I had missed up until then. And when I moved to San Francisco for school, I was like, oh, everyone's an astrologer here and everyone's incredibly (laughs) political and everyone's very educated and, you know, everyone that's already happening. I just didn't know that it was happening because I was in the west side of Los Angeles where that that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, And so very quickly I was like, oh, oh, yeah, it's here. Your astrological work eventually drew the attention of celebrities and major publications. Today, you have more than 300,000 followers on Instagram, over a million monthly readers on your website. Uh, You keep your celebrity client list private, but can you talk a little bit about the reading that you did for Lizzo because it was conducted Uh, live? What was that like for you? And can you talk a little bit about her chart? Oh, my God. Lizzo is so incredible. She just is such a beautiful example of what it is to really live out your chart. So in the reading I did for the Cosmic Playlist launch last year, we talked about the fact that she has Sun, Jupiter. And so the Sun rules her ascendant. So it's very important. It talks about how she gets to where she needs to get to and and what area of life. And it's in the 10th house of career. So her life purpose is to shine on the world stage (laughs) in her career. (laughs) And she has Sun conjunct Jupiter, which is... Jupiter is the planet of optimism, positivity, spirituality, acceptance, inclusion, and abundance, and confidence. I don't know if you would say that Lizzo really embodies that on the world stage in a very joyous way, but it's uh, I think she's just a, uh, an incredible example of that. And also, her first song to go big was called Juice, mm. and Jupiter is... As a deity in the Greco-Roman system, Jupiter was very, very, very um, much about fertility and slept with a lot of people. And he's the god of lightning and thunder. And so the lightning and the rain, and the rain was thought to be a fertility ritual <laughs> and the way it hit the ground and, and what would happen when that would go on. So Jupiter is really juicy in a sense in terms of that he's or the the planet is connected with the rain and the fertility of it and so that that was her first song to go big I also thought was quite poignant you know she's about taking up space and being big and loud and 
positive and giving and very, very generous. And she's a very generous and very humorous. And that's all. It's so Sun, Jupiter. They're the two, like, big royal bodies that are about self-expression and and all those things I mentioned. I know that you don't really do private readings anymore because the demand was just too much, but I believe you just started a really, really cool new resource on your website, ChannyNicholas.com, where where our listeners can look up their charts. It seems that this is now a really crucial tool that you wanted to have in place for your your readers and, and your fans and followers. Talk about how that is going to change what you're doing. Well, it is a companion tool to the book. So if, you know, looking at your chart makes you want to close your computer or shut your phone off because it's so complicated and feels like there's just so much information coming at you, we devised a tool where we lay everything out for you in the simplest, hopefully the prettiest way possible, where all that info is put out and that you can just read the parts of the book that apply to you. And we're going to be building out that whole framework more and more. So we also talk about every planet in your chart, what sign it's in, with that a little bit about what that might mean, what house it's in. And so it's a way for the general public to be more engaged with their chart because I really do feel like this is your map. This is the map of your life. And I want to give you the tools so that you feel like you can have a conversation with it and that you feel empowered enough to be getting the information from it that could set something in you free or, like me, give you permission to do the thing that you're here to do. And this is all free, right? This is all free. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Chani, I have I have one last question for you. Yeah. You've come so far in, in a life that really was started with so much trauma and have turned that trauma into something that's so positive for the world. And One of the things that I really love to talk to the people that I interview about is the trajectory of their lives, how they've become who they are. And we're living in a day and age now where young people feel so much pressure Mm. to make it early. And you've described yourself both today on our show as well as in your book as a late, late bloomer. And I would also describe myself as, as a late bloomer. I'm wondering if you can give my listeners some advice about what it means to be a late bloomer and all of the extraordinary gifts and possibilities that that can bring. Mm. Yeah, I don't know what would have happened to my psyche had I had social media in my 20s and 30s. I think it would have kind of broken me in a place because there was so much that I needed to do in private and so much that I needed to do in my own way and the pressure to perform who we are or to perform success or to perform even understanding is really incredible. My heart goes out to folks that feel in any way pressured to do that and don't quite have the wherewithal to either not do it, to abstain, or to do it in a way that feels positive for them. But the thing that age teaches us is so incredible because if we are going to be partners in our own life, then we get to recede from the outer shell of it and deepen our relationship with ourself. 
And in order to deepen our relationship with ourself, we have to also deepen our relationship with our wounds and the places in us that really hurt. And that takes time, and it just takes consistent effort. It's like when a child is really upset and in the throes of a tantrum, they won't just stop, most likely, automatically. It's like there has to be an unwinding of what happened and a parsing out and an understanding of what went on. And that just takes years and years of consistent, thoughtful, compassionate approaching our, of ourselves and, our, and the ways in which we work. And so what I can say is that when we do have that commitment to ourself and to our own growth, things do get better. I, we can't change anybody else. And certainly the world is, you know, full of disaster and complications and things that feel insurmountable. But that my relationship with myself only gets richer and deeper, which means that I get to experience so many things that I couldn't even have dreamed and had zero access to or understanding of how to access. And now that I have a relationship with that or that I have access to things like joy and pleasure and relaxation, (laughs) things that I didn't have much of a relationship with at all, so many more things are possible like connection and relationships and depth and an understanding of what my talents are and how I can serve them best. And so there is no greater investment that we can make, I think, in our youth than besides a 401k, uh, (laughs) the, the investment of our own healing and every single moment that we spend trying to be more self self aware or trying to understand how we got here and what's occurring every single investment adds up in, in ways that are unfathomable later in life. All of it is worth it, but please don't think you have to have any of it figured out or that you have to be any certain place at any certain age. It's such a lie and it will rob you of the ability to be present in the moment where then that this is the only place where the good stuff is, where the juice is, where the creative energy is, where the healing is and where the possibility is. Chani, thank you so much for trying to heal the world with your work. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. It's an honor. Chani Nicholas's book is now officially a New York Times bestselling book, and it's called You Were Born for This, The Astrology for Radical Self-Acceptance. You can find out more about Chani and have your chart read for free at ChaniNicholas.com. As we approach the 15th anniversary of Design Matters, I'd like to thank you for listening all these years. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. A special thanks to our sponsor, AC Hotels by Marriott, member of Marriott Bonvoy. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. 
Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.